The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Einstein said he could never understand it all. Planets are spinning through space. Smile upon your face. Welcome to the human race. Sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a lovely ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now here's your host, Jay Taylor. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm also the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks weekly newsletter. It's also a monthly letter. You can learn more about my work by going to miningstocks.com. That's M-I-N-I-N-G-S-T-O-C-K-S dot com. You can also call my assistant, Claudio Bassi, at 718-457-1426. That's 718-457-1426 to sign up to my newsletter or Roger Wiegand's newsletter at Chen Lin's newsletter as well. We have had a good track record with my model portfolio. Uh, We've picked many big winners over the years, especially in the gold mining sector. My model portfolio, for example, had grown from $1,000 on January 2000 to over $3,200 before the Lehman Brothers collapsed last fall. After that decline, we have clawed our way back with a gain of around 50% so far this year in 2009. And since 2000, we've tripled the value of the S&P 500. So in spite of last year's uh, decline, we have uh, certainly have done a lot of good things and have made our subscribers a fair amount of money over the years. Uh, in addition to my own newsletter, uh, me and my staff also assist Chen Lin in marketing his newsletter. It's called, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Now, Chen has had a remarkable track record in investing his family's money. For example, he took his wife's IRA 
uh, from $5,400 on January 1st of 2003 to 440000 as of the end of July 2009. That's in a Roth IRA, which uh, was nothing was added to it. It's simply the value of that uh, of those investments, and that's how well Chen did from 5400 to 440000 from 2003 to the middle of this year. Chen was a former PhD student in aeronautical engineering at Princeton, but he put that endeavor on hold to devote full time to investing because he was doing so well with his investments. Um, and actually, Chen had come to me uh, had, after seeing me on BNN television, and he had a lot of exciting things to tell me. He would call me frequently and tell me about all these exciting investments, but I just didn't have the time to dig into it and to follow Chen. So I said, Chen, why don't we set up a newsletter called What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And that's exactly what we did. And Chen has been very successful with his newsletter, and his subscribers have done quite well since we started it back in February of this year. Me and my staff also assist Roger Wiegand in marketing his weekly newsletter called Trader Tracks. Roger's letter is geared towards those who wish to invest in commodities and futures markets and options markets. Roger also covers some ETFs, and he's a technical analyst, does a very nice job of helping me understand uh, the uh, the technicals for the market in general, and Roger also covers the major markets. We pass along his comments in my own weekly newsletter called uh, J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Uh, to sign up again, to sign up for any of our newsletters, you can call Claudio Bossi at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or go to miningstocks.com. Well, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show. I also want to thank our corporate sponsors, namely Coral Gold, Hawthorne Gold, Palangial Explorations, Metanor Resources, and Sand Gold. Only because of those companies' contribution is it possible for us to bring you this, at least from a financial perspective. Uh, We're very thankful to those companies uh, for making this show possible. Well, six months ago, on March 24th, I began broadcasting this show called Turning Hard Times into Good Times. The show is premised on two beliefs. First, the real cause of the financial demise of the United States is not being told to the American people. The real cause of our problems is the result of not free market economics, but exactly the opposite policies of Keynesian economics and monetarist theory personified by Milton Friedman. The second premise is that based on the belief that only by properly understanding what the real cause of our problem is, can you fix it? Can you fix it uh, in terms of uh, policy and in terms of your own investment portfolio? Because if you don't really understand what's going on, you're going to make the wrong decisions. And that, by the way, I believe is why we've been able to do so well in our model portfolio since January of 2000. Well, given those two premises upon which this show is based, our goals then for this show is to help investors uh, pick the right kind of investments to succeed, to make money. And as I said, we've been fairly successful in doing that. Secondly, and on a grander scale then, we want to help people understand the real cause of our problems uh, so that they can elect the kind of people that can put us back on, on the course towards a free market economy instead of one that is leading us towards socialism and tyranny, which is really the course that I believe we're headed towards right now. Given this vision for our show, it was fitting that our very first guest would be G. Edward Griffin. He's the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island. The Creature from Jekyll Island is perhaps one of the most important books that you can ever read because it really outlines who owns the Federal Reserve and the real reasons that it was created, which was really to bail out the bankers, not really to save the economy, as we are told. 
Griffin initially wrote The Creature from Jekyll Island back in July of 1994, and you can buy his book by going to therealityzone.com. That's realityzone.com. You can also buy it elsewhere on eBay and on the Internet. Well, on our very first show on March 24, 2009, I asked Mr. Griffin to talk about The Creature from Jekyll Island and the Federal Reserve Bank. Here is what he told me. The book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, ostensibly is about the Federal Reserve System, but uh, it's much bigger than that. It's it's about uh, the nature of money. It's about economic laws. It's about uh, the abuse of uh, the power to create a nation's money and, and how that abuse leads to corruption in government and so many things that are now descending around our heads. And uh, But it ostensibly is about the Federal Reserve System, which is the mechanism uh, by which the United States creates money on behalf of the uh, government. And uh, the meeting to which you were referring back in 1910 at Jekyll Island was the uh, seminal meeting where a small group of uh, the wealthiest people in the world are representing their firms, seven of them, went to Jekyll Island because it was uh, out of the beaten path, it was very private, and, in fact, they even denied for quite some time that they went to such a meeting. It was a secret meeting. And it was at that meeting that they hammered together all the important details of what was to become the Federal Reserve System three years later when it was passed into law in 1913. Now, the, the reason they did this in secret and, uh, and uh, denied that they were participating is a very simple reason. The Federal Reserve was offered to the American people as an agency of the federal government, supposedly they thought it was an agency of the federal government, and it wasn't. But it was offered to them as uh, an agency which was supposed to uh, put the reins on the very powerful banking uh, dynasties in Wall Street. Uh, the people of America were very concerned by this uh, huge power, economic power that had coalesced into the hands of a, sm- of a few uh, uh, Wall Street uh, investment firms. They knew that the... the credit of the entire nation was wrapped up in a few banks and insurance companies. They were concerned about that, and they thought that the Federal Reserve System was going to put controls on those very wealthy, powerful institutions and, um, you know, and make sure that they serve the purposes of the nation rather than the private purposes of the, uh, of the corporations. And so the reason for the secrecy is that the very corporations and institutions which supposedly were to be controlled by this legislation were the ones that were drafting the legislation. They decided that, well, okay, the the people want uh, uh, some laws now to control our industry, so we're not going to wait for enemies of our industry to write those laws. We will do it ourselves, and we'll hide that fact. We'll let the people think that it was done by their noble politicians when, in fact, we are the ones that are drafting it, and that's the reason for the secrecy. It's a very simple and an obvious uh, logical arrangement when you think about it. And the people that went there, the seven of them were Nelson Aldridge, who was the, the Republican whip in the Senate, uh, one of the wealthiest men in the country, uh, Abraham Piat Andrew, who was Assistant Secretary of the Treasury at that time, but he was he came from a banking family, and that's the reason he was Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, because basically he had banking connections. Frank Vanderlip was there. He was president of the National City Bank of New York. Henry P. Davison was a senior partner of the J.P. Morgan Company. Charles D. Norton was president of J.P. Morgan's First National Bank of New York. 
Benjamin Strong was there. He was head of J.P. Morgan's Bankers Trust Company. And finally, Paul Warburg was there, who was a full partner in Kuhn Loban Company, which was a representative of the Rothschild banking dynasty in England and France. And, of course, his brother, Max Warburg, was the head of the Warburg Banking Consortium in Germany and the Netherlands. Those are the guys that drafted the Federal Reserve Act. And when you look at the wealth which they held individually and which their banks and institutions held, according to estimates at the time, which we pulled out of the New York Times, was that they represented about one-fourth of the wealth of the entire world. Now, that was, in other words, the very banking cartel, the industry, uh, the uh, money trust, as they called it in the newspapers those days. Mm -hmm. That was the very money trust that supposedly the uh, Federal Reserve System was supposed to control, Mm -hmm. and they drafted the legislation. Well, now we jump ahead to today. What's the fruit of that? The reason these guys created the Federal Reserve System is so that they could use the uh, governmental power that that backed it to make sure that they would uh, enjoy a nice, handsome profit no matter whether their businesses failed or succeeded. They knew that if their their businesses were probably going to fail because they were uh, they were uh, undergoing very unsound banking practices, they were lending money they didn't have. Uh, they didn't really concern themselves too much with the ability of the person to pay or the institution or country to pay back the loans because they knew that in in the event of a crisis, they could always go to the taxpayer and get the taxpayers to put up the money to cover the losses. That was all started back in 1910. And, you know, for years, people tried to tell the American people that this is what's going on and you better look out because, you know, you're going to wind up picking up this huge bill. And nobody was interested. They said, "Ah, I don't believe that. Um, And anyway, we're living well, aren't we? Look at the prosperity. Mm -hmm. Now, here we are now in 2009, and it's finally coming down the way some of us have been predicting all these years. And now people are saying, well, what happened? Well, how did this happen? How did we let this happen? Well, they let it happen is because they didn't care. Yeah. It didn't take an interest. Now it's, uh, it's very, very, very late. But Ed, the reasons given to us, um, you know, constantly by the media has always been, you know, it's for our own good. They're going to, uh, they're they're going to uh, manage the economy. They're going to they're going to be able to avoid uh, significant downturns in in the economy by uh, by having more liquidity, by having the, the Federal Reserve being able to uh, to create lots of money. Um, but. You know that obviously isn't uh, isn't working out too well, is it? Well, no. That's always been the argument from the very beginning, back in 1913 when they passed the the bill. It was all to help America. It was all to help you folks, the the average person. We are doing this. The bankers are saying we bankers are doing this, and we politicians are doing this for you folks. Not all. We don't benefit, do we? Of course not. Uh, it's it's a bunch of nonsense. It's uh, it's propaganda, and it's just amazing to me that uh, the average uh, voter is uh, is so uh, politically illiterate mm-hmm. that they fall for that stuff over and over and over again. They actually believe that the government is there to help them. You know, that's well, they Ed, actually believe that. Ed, you could say that in a way then that the uh, that the stated reasons for the Federal Reserve's creation has been a failure, perhaps, but but. Have, has the Fed, looking at it from their own through their own eyes, if you could do so, 
Have, has the Fed's real reasons for being created been a failure, do you think? Oh, it's been a, a rip-roaring success. Uh-huh. The Federal Reserve has succeeded on every one of the principles which they set out to, to, uh, to do back on Jekyll Island when they discussed the purpose of the Fed. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, it was to control the competition. They were, they were concerned over the arrival of new banks springing up in the south and on the west coast of the expanding nation in those days. And they wanted to keep control in New York with the existing biggest banks. They, they wanted to be able to pass on their losses to the taxpayer. They wanted to be able to create money out of nothing so as to manipulate interest rates, which would drive people to the banks to borrow money at, at uh, low interest rates rather than for people to save money and do whatever they wanted to do, expand business or take vacations or whatever they wanted to do with money. Instead of saving the money, they wanted to bring the people into the banks to borrow money because the banks make money only when others come in and borrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, the banks really don't want you to pay back your loans. They want you to just keep those loans open forever, like a credit card statement, and just send in your interest every month. Well, Ed, as I understand, you know, as the United States was a young country in the early 1900s, it was growing very rapidly. The, eight, eight, the late 1800s, it was growing very rapidly, and there were a lot of very successful companies that were not really needing banks. They were actually growing from internally generated funds. That is, they took their profits and reinvested them so that the institutions, the, the industrial companies themselves, were actually, in a sense, banking interest, and they were crowding out the, the big New York, the money center banks. It was that then part of their reason was to avoid that competition? Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying, yes. They they did not want uh, private capital formation. That was almost like a dirty phrase. They spoke about how can, we, how can we circumvent private capital formation as though it was an evil thing. They wanted people coming to the banks to borrow money rather than save it. Well, we've heard this phrase recently in the mainstream media, um, privatizing profits socializing uh, losses, and I guess that's, that's what they've been doing. But, Ed, when we're talking about now, we're talking about not billions of dollars. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars and even trillions of dollars of socialized losses that the common folks are being asked to shoulder. Is that, is that what's going on here? And did yeah, it, I, it, that it all have its origins back and, in 1910 then? That's right. It's, it's been going on for a long time, but it's certainly accelerating right now to the point where I, I think the cup is going to be full. I mean, there's, there comes a point when you do have total socialized uh, government, socialized industry, socialized uh, everything, banking, health care, and so forth. Uh, you start off with 10% and then 15, 20, 30, 80, and so forth. At some point, you get to 100%. Mm. And uh, we're, I think we're very close to that, and, and these guys in Washington are, are laying out the, the roadmap to get us to that point in a very short period of time now. And when we get to 100%, I think people need to realize that not only are, uh, is the economy totally regimented by government, but people themselves are totally regimented by government. It's, and Ed, I think that it's true that uh, socialism doesn't really create wealth. It, it is a consumer of wealth. The capitalism really creates wealth. Uh, we're going to have to take a break here in a little bit, but one of the things I want to ask you about is gold and what what role did gold play? Gold has been the enemy of of, uh, of sort of the fractional reserve banking system that the uh, that the Federal Reserve has espoused. So, you know, when we come back, um, uh, maybe you could address that issue a little bit, or or maybe get started on it right now for the next few seconds. Well, yeah, just to get started on it, gold has always been the enemy of uh, politicians and uh, bankers who want the ability to expand, you know, create money supply out of nothing, so mm-hmm. they can 
can collect interest on huge amounts of nothing, literally. Mm-hmm. Gold has always been a discipline which they hate. And so there's a great propaganda war to convince the American people that gold is not a good thing. You should not have a monetary system backed by gold. And they're not quite sure why, but they've heard it so many times that uh-huh. they just repeat it. So I guess it would not be a gigantic uh, surprise to you then that uh, when the Gold Antitrust Action Committee, headed by Bill Murphy and uh, a couple of those uh, folks, the hard money camp, uh, really started to talk about this issue, um, was that a surprise to you when you heard them talk about conspiracy on the part of the government and banks to to control the price of gold, or at least to keep it from rising so rapidly? No, it wasn't a surprise to me. I was just mad that it took them so long to get there, <laughs> because that thing has been going on. The manipulation of the uh, gold supply and the price of gold has been going on for a long, long uh-huh. time. But I'm sure glad that uh, that committee came into being because they had the expertise uh, and the knowledge of being able to figure it out and explain it. So there you have it. The Fed was created to socialize profits and privatize risks. The owners of the Federal Reserve managed to write legislation back in 1913 that essentially put the fox in charge of the chicken coop, so to speak. And now we have a situation where the Fed has managed to increase its power even more, using the excuse that one unified strong ruling entity is needed for decisive action in a time of crisis rather than to have quarreling competing government entities vying for power. In fact, as creator of the world's reserve currency, the Federal Reserve has been gaining enormous amounts of power as a result of the U.S. going off the international gold standard in 1971. So its powers have grown enormously since it was created in 1913, and that was long before now. This crisis, they're looking for even more power. They have gained so much power and have abused it so badly, however, by printing so much money and creating so much debt and malinvestment that the entire global system, the financial system, is now in danger of collapsing. From the time the Fed was created and even now, in the midst of a depression, policymakers have told us that higher taxes and inflation are for our own good, as Ed Griffin has just explained. The American people have bought into that lie, hook, line, and sinker for the most part. Well, I think it's time for us Americans to wake up and realize that we have been deceived by our rulers. As a result of the Fed's excessive money creation over the past number of decades, debt has been built up to the point where it cannot be repaid, leading to an insolvent banking system. Indeed, there is reason to think we are facing a time that could be as bad or worse than that of the Great Depression our parents and grandparents faced. But there is some reason to be hopeful that the American people are waking up to the carnage created by the Federal Reserve. One of the signs of hope has to be seen in the hugely successful presidential campaign of Texas Congressman Ron Paul. We interviewed Ron on this show back on April 7th. He told us at that time that he had just introduced legislation that would require the Fed to be audited. As of this date, there has been enormous support for passage of Ron's bill because Americans are waking up to the fact that the Fed has engaged in a financial rape and pillage of the American people. There is growing anger in America about this. Ron has been hugely successful in educating Americans about the tremendous damage the Fed has done to them and to our monetary system. And so, in my view, there is reason for hope that the American people may understand that our elite policymakers have been unfaithful to our Constitution, which, in fact, requires money to be backed by gold and silver. 
We now have to take time for a commercial break, but as soon as we come back, we will replay my April 7th conversation with Ron Paul. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Dr. Paul. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources, traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Barry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. For asset security in uncertain times, gold has always been the investment of choice. One of the best ways to profit from gold investing is to buy shares in companies that are exploring and developing gold deposits. Coral Gold is a gold exploration and development company with over 2.3 million drill-indicated ounces of gold. Coral Gold's low market cap allows investors to participate with leverage in a rising gold market. Coral Gold has a long track record of success in Nevada, dating back over 25 years. Visit Coral Gold on the web today at CoralGold.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome, Ron, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. 
Uh, thank you, Jack. Good to be with you. Well, let's jump into more of the, the basic issues of what this program is about. Uh, First of all, we hear comparisons these days about our current recession. Some people are even suggesting that it is, in fact, a lot of mainstream people are suggesting that uh, what we're going through or what we're entering into could be as bad or even worse than the Great Depression. Do you think that is overstating our current crisis? No, I don't. I think that we're barely into it. And I think the bubble was bigger than ever. And it's probably something the world has never faced before because we had a single fiat currency, the dollar, that had the privilege of uh, inflating for many, many decades, and it was used as the reserve currency. And so, therefore, uh, we affected the whole world and uh, caused so many dislocations. So if other countries took our dollars and believed that they were very rich and used uh, that as their reserves, they then inflated. In many ways, uh, China is as vulnerable as we are, although they worked hard, produced goods and services, and they saved a lot of money, uh, but, it, but they got paid in paper. So that's worldwide, and that system has collapsed. I think the post-Bretton uh, Woods system that you know started in 1971 when Bretton Woods broke down, I think that system is done. I don't think they can repair it. They're pretending that they can. The dollar... Uh, which has been used before is still used and people are clinging to the dollar but uh, the financial system that uh, it was based on it's gone and I believe that the dollar will go to at, at this rate um, unless something is done radically to change it and to uh, and, and to restore confidence in the, in the dollar but for now uh, it's, it's limping along but I think uh, uh, the debt has not been liquidated. The malinvestment has not been liquidated. We're doing all the things that uh, we did in uh, in the Depression time to delay the correction. We don't believe in free markets liquidating bad debt. Uh, we just prop it up, and uh, I think we're destined to destroy the dollar. I mean, just look at the trillions of dollars that have been created in this past year. Mm. I mean, it just can't happen. I tell people, if it does work, and I'm wrong, that means Americans never have to work again. You know, all you have to do is get on the gravy train, pass out dollars, and tell everybody to produce for us, and we'll pay you for it. Doesn't seem logical, does it? And, you know, Ph.D. in economics have a hard time grasping that, Ron. <laughs> my, my mother, who went to through her sophomore year in high school, understands it. And when she saw you, uh, some of your remarks on television, she says, you know, Jay, he's the only one that makes any sense. So it's sort of ironic that people with the highest education sometimes have the most difficulty in grasping the most basic truths. Uh, you, you mentioned the post-Bretton Woods era in 1971. Of course, that was what I call Bretton Woods, too, because that's when Nixon took us off the gold standard. Initially, we had an international gold standard when Bretton Woods was first set up. Is this the first time in history that we've that the whole world has been on a fiat system, a non-gold-backed or a non-metal-backed uh, currency system? It's the only one that I know of, and, and it's uh, and as pervasive as it has been. I don't think anything ever comes close. I mean, in the in the very very old days, in, in Roman times, and when the world was much smaller, uh, they they had a lot of disruptions, but it wasn't quite as uh, extreme because their inflation and distortions would become with maybe clipping coins or uh, diluting the metal and, and things like that. So there would uh, still be some metal value behind yeah, the currency, and, behind the paper. And, and this time, uh, I guess we fooled a lot of people for a long time, but we're not fooling them anymore. So that's why 
people finally found that this was a total house of cards, and the house of cards has collapsed, and now we have to look for the foundation. But the dollar, which I consider a very sand-like foundation, uh, it's not going to work. I don't think we can rebuild this uh, on the dollar again, even though people have parked a lot of money in the dollar. I sort of think what's going on is the Fed creates trillions. We're not allowed to monitor them. They're secret. They're beyond any uh, any type of transparency or uh, auditing by the by the by the Congress. I think they pass that money out to foreigners to prop up the dollar, you know, to keep the system going, believing that they can rebuild this. And this week, uh, the G20 is meeting. I think uh, there's a bunch of them there that think they're going to patch it together uh, just by producing more money. The the uh, IMF asked for, uh, you know, $250 billion, and we're arguing, no, that's not enough. They need $500 billion. I mean, the whole thing just is so bizarre. That's why I just don't think the answer is going to come very quickly. Ron, uh, the Treasury Secretary of FDR, in fact, uh, said that admitted that the that the New Deal was a was a total failure. He he mentioned after eight years of of the F, FDR's policies that in fact unemployment was as high then as it had been eight years earlier. And he mentioned that we had this huge amount of debt to boot. Why in the world, if we look back and you know at the 1930s, are we following the same in the same footsteps? Boy, you know that's that's the major question, and I think it comes from the uh, delusion of Keynesians. Although Keynesian came in vogue in the '30s, uh, you know the Keynesian approach of Bernanke and his talking about uh, you know to Milton Friedman by saying, um, you know, you were right, Milton Friedman, you were right. The Fed caused the problem. Mm. You know, we won't we won't do it again. So to them, they are not repeating it, and I guess. We have to concede to them that they're not repeating everything. They're just doing it more excessively. Yeah. You know, so, yes, they, to us, it hasn't, they haven't changed a thing. So that's why uh, the, they're inflating uh, much, much faster than they, even though they tried to inflate a lot in the Depression, it, it didn't work. But they propped up prices and salaries, and they used government programs and more regulations, and just went on and on. So we're doing all those things in the government management. Uh, but the, the big difference is uh, that in their minds is that they uh, they are massively inflating more than they ever did in the, in the 30s. But to, to answer the question on why do why do governments and peoples repeat the same mistakes? You know, sometimes that's just sort of a mystery. You'd think they'd wake up. Indeed, uh, you know, Ed Griffin. Um, um who is the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, was our first guest on this series. And, you know, Ed spoke of the Federal Reserve. He said that the Federal Reserve, which was created in 1913, uh, has certain stated purposes that uh, have been a total failure. But on the other hand, if you look at the unstated purposes of the Fed, that is to bail out the banks and the the, the very wealthy uh, banking interest in the United States, it's been a total, uh, it's been a total success. Uh, I know that you've introduced legislation, I think almost every every term in Congress, to um, to get rid of the Federal Reserve, in fact. Um, and, and, and that would be on constitutional grounds, I believe. Is that right, Ron? Yeah, it would be because it's not authorized, and uh, it's been argued over the years. But uh, every time it uh, goes to the courts, the courts always rules in favor of the uh, central bank, and that's how... Uh, how we got here. And the bill that I have that would get rid of the Fed, it's there to make a point. 
uh, even I don't advocate getting rid of the Fed tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But the, re- uh, the reason that we have to talk about it is the Fed may end, or the dollar system may end, and if it ends catastrophically, you know, because of the rejection of the dollar, that's a lot worse than coming to our senses. The, another bill that I've just recently introduced is, I, I think, the proper interim step, and that is to open up the books uh, to allow us to know exactly what the Fed is doing. Mm. Everybody has heard in the news how there have been lawsuits filed against the Fed uh, to tell us exactly how much money they created and where where they sent it. And they just stiff us on it. They just no, we don't have to. And they're right under the law. Mm. And I've told I told them in person, you know, in committee. I say, you know, under the law, you you don't have to, but under the Constitution, you should. Yeah. You know? And they they don't tell us a thing. And my bill would be to able to audit the Fed and repeal the portion of the code that says that they are exempt from any auditing. As one who picks stocks and tries to do well for my own family and for my subscribers to my newsletter, one of the main concerns I have is whether our system is inflating or deflating. We've seen uh, quite a bit of deflation in the financial assets. I mean, a lot of deflation in the financial assets with the Dow below half of where it was at its peak. At a dinner in San Francisco back in November 2007, I recall asking both you and Mark Faber whether we might get another Paul Volcker at the Fed as we had in 1980. I mean, that's when the system was still inflating back there in, in 2007. Volcker slowed the money supply drastically uh, such that my first mortgage back in 1981 was a 17.5% mortgage. Both Mark and you thought that that was politically impossible, that we weren't going to see another Paul Volcker rise uh, anytime soon. So do you still see rising levels of inflation as inevitable at this stage, or is it possible that the deflationary forces may be so strong that they simply cannot be overcome by for quite a while until massive amounts of debt is written off of the books, as in fact happened in the 1930s? You know, we went from 1929 until World War II, essentially, in a depression, and I would argue that I, that the World War II, maybe, you know, some people argue that was the effective stimulus that caused us to grow again, but I would argue that the main thing that took place during that time was that massive amounts of debt was worked off the books, and that made it possible for regrowth of the economy. Uh, what are your thoughts? Are, are we yeah. destined yeah, to have I, I, a lot of inflation? Um, and if so, how soon might we see that? Yeah, I think conditions are a lot different. I think you're right that debt was liquidated during the war, but after the war they cut spending by two-thirds and taxes by one-third, so that had a lot to do with it too. But the liquidation debt was important. I think the uh, reason why we have this uh, continuous uh, debate is uh, even within our own camp, we have different perceptions of what we're talking about when we talk about inflation or deflation. And I take a very strict definition of it, and I just look to the money supply. And uh, the consumer price index sometimes goes up, sometimes goes down uh, with inflation. During the 20s, uh, and there was no price inflation, but there was a lot of inflation because the money supply was going up and there was uh, a distortion. But, uh, no, I don't think... I don't think too many people who are believers in inflation are too shocked or are surprised to see tremendous amount of liquidation of debt, which to some people they call that deflation. Mm-hmm. But um, now if, if, if Bernanke had not really, really pumped uh, and just allowed bankruptcies to occur, 
uh, then then the money supply might have shrunk, which it did, yeah. Yeah. you know, to a degree in the depression. But the money supply is not shrinking. Uh, but people are feeling less rich. Uh, their wealth has been have been shrinking. But they weren't all that wealthy to begin with. So I would say we have inflation. In in the soon prices will start rising. Prices are rising in medical care and food right now. So I expect inflation to continue. But but there certainly is uh, deflation of value in the financial instruments. Do you see a, a, a danger of hyperinflation? Could things get so out of hand that we have a, a German Weimar Republic situation on our hands? I keep thinking that we're not that stupid and that we just print, a, print money, but right now I think the more unemployment there is, that will never cut unemployment checks. We have a vehicle today, which we didn't have in the 30s, to pass out money, mm. uh, and that is uh, you know, through Social Security and pay for the medical care and unemployment benefits. Uh, they, they, didn't, they couldn't quite do it like that in the 30s, but right now they will not hesitate for a minute uh, to not pass out money. Uh, Bernanke said he'd use helicopters, but of course that's a cliche. In a way, it, it will be passed out, so that's why I, I expect uh, the value of the dollar to go down. So as long as you see the money supply growing, uh, the value has to go down. And right now, it's it's sort of the uh, velocity of money or the propensity for people to spend the money. People are reluctant. Uh, even wealthy people who have a lot of money in the bank, they say, I don't know what's going to happen next year, so I'm not going to spend my money. So yeah. once that attitude changes, and that's a psychological point, and that is what you can't predict. As you think as, that, but that will come as long as you keep printing the money. So, so do you think if they if they uh, hand out money, say to the lower income groups, the middle income people, that they will spend that money if there's transfer checks sent out to the masses? That that is a way they could kickstart things and get things to to move again. Yeah, well, maybe in a negative sense because yeah. uh, if they have if they pass out enough money and and people have to live, what we'll do. If if they have to have housing and they have to have energy and they have to have food, uh, it, it's just going to push prices up. That's when I think you will get more uh, moving in the in the direction of uh, the Zimbabwe situation, where prices are going up in the midst of a recession or depression. So you can have inflationary depression. Yeah. So if we continue on this course, that's what I would expect—an uh, inflationary depression. Right now, we're—I don't—we uh, don't have true deflation. Although, like we see, we see prices going down in stocks, and people feel less wealthy. But there's still a lot of money out there. Ron, the uh, you know our show is titled uh, "Turning Hard Times into Good Times." We've talked about a lot of gloom and doom here. We're almost out of time, but. Your most recent book, The Revolution, A Manifesto, my goodness, when I mentioned that word to my friend Al Corlin, we were speaking on the radio the other day, he sort of shuddered. People don't like to hear about revolutions, <laughs> but we had one back in 1776, and it was a good one. Um, you're calling for a revolution, I guess a revolution of thought, not necessarily, I'm sure you don't want a violent revolution. You want a revolution of thinking that, that would bring people back to the Constitution so what can people do? What can individuals do for themselves as well as to try to do their small part to help the nation get back on course? What, what would you suggest? Well, uh, it, it's tough because the government has messed things up so badly and we don't have a, a good currency to work with and they've interfered with. Uh, the, the system we're just willing to work doesn't solve our problem. People should still think about how, what kind of a service they can provide for their neighbors and their friends in order to make a living, whether you can uh, live on a farm or a mechanic or provide some 
worthwhile service to people. So that's number one to have that and take care of oneself and take care of one's family. Mm-hmm. My second on the list is is really trying to straighten out the mess. I've invested a lot of time and money and energy into saying that if we do the right things, we don't have to worry about these kind of problems. And that, of course, is is education. But then other people have to try to protect against inflation and and uh, and, and they can't if they can't change the government overnight, which we can't. Then I say, well, if I if I personally believe the dollar is going down, I think uh, people should own real hard assets, and I believe this for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I've been buying gold and silver since gold was thirty five dollars an ounce, and there were a few years where it didn't look like it uh, made a lot of sense. But when you think about the last hundred years, it used to be twenty dollars an ounce, <laughs> almost a thousand dollars an ounce. So yeah. I would say the trend is pretty definite. I had somebody from the house floor the other day come over and said, "Tell me what to do, Ron. What am I supposed to do on my investments? Because you can't buy these stocks, and I got to do something." And he says, "It's too late to buy gold." And I said, "Well, I wouldn't. I don't think I'd say that <laughs> because I said if you want, if you think it's too late, that means you have confidence that we in the Congress uh, will quit spending excessively and we're going to run up any debt." And he just shrugged his shoulders and said, "Well, maybe you're right." <laughs> Well, I hear that all the time too, Ron. People think it's too late to buy gold, but given what you were saying the government's going to do and their insatiable desire to inflate, I have to say I, I don't agree with that at all. I think gold is going to go much higher. And in fact, the purchasing power of gold has been rising very dramatically. If you look at gold, will buy three times more oil than it would have bought before the Lehman Brothers collapse. Actually, we're out of time, folks. Ron, I'm so sorry. I wish we had another another half hour, an hour or two to talk with you. You always have so much to say. I want to thank you so much for sharing your precious time. I know it's not easy for you these days to, to sacrifice this time, uh, but it's so much appreciated, and I know that people who listen to this show are going to really enjoy your comments and benefit from them. All the best to you and your family, and God's blessings to you, Ron. Thank you, Jay. So back on April 7th, when we spoke to Ron Paul, he opined that we were in the early stages of an economic demise that was as bad or worse than that of the 1930s. He offered his advice about how we should cope with the stressful times that most likely lie ahead of us. This show was being recorded during the closing days of August 2009. As of this time, complacency has crept back into the markets and the minds of the American people. People seem to think the kind of dangers Ron Paul warned us against are over because even if the economy remains in the doldrums, higher stock prices have boosted confidence. Unfortunately, I do not believe that the worst is over. To the contrary, we are most likely now in the eye of the hurricane and turbulent financial winds are likely to begin blowing very soon again. We have to go to station break right now. When we come back, I'll have some closing remarks as to why the worst still most likely lies ahead of us. And I will tell you about next week's guest who feels we are facing what he terms a cataclysmic nation-changing event to correct the bull market that began in 1718. Don't go away. I'll be right back. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. 
For asset security in uncertain times, gold has always been the investment of choice. One of the best ways to profit from gold investing is to buy shares in companies that are exploring and developing gold deposits. Coral Gold is a gold exploration and development company with over 2.3 million drill-indicated ounces of gold. Coral Gold's low market cap allows investors to participate with leverage in a rising gold market. Coral Gold has a long track record of success in Nevada, dating back over 25 years. Visit Coral Gold on the web today at CoralGold.com. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources, traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Barry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a lovely ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, Today we set out to record snippets of the best of Turning Hard Times into Good Times since we started this program back in March of this year. While we had many remarks from many guests we would have liked to have replayed for you today, due to time constraints, Ed Griffin and Ron Paul were chosen exclusively because I think they both lay the intellectual foundation upon which this show has been built. Ed Griffin provided an historical foundation for how the Fed was created, by whom, and for what purposes. And as a member of Congress, 
and presidential candidate Ron Paul provided a very unique view from inside the government about how our system is in the process of self-destruction. How soon that destruction will manifest itself in terms of major amounts of suffering by the American people is anyone's guess. Certainly with high rates of unemployment, that suffering has already begun in a major way. Unfortunately, we think it has only begun. Next week, our guest, Dr. Robert McHugh, will provide a more detailed and graphic vision of where he thinks we are heading and how soon that is likely to occur. Dr. McHugh has gone on record saying he thinks the recent rise in the equity markets is merely a correction to the start of a major bear market that, uh, when the sea wave down hits, could be one for the ages. In fact, to quote Dr. McHugh, he calls this a cataclysmic nation-changing event to correct the bull market that began in 1718. Dr. McHugh believes the Dow could fall to between 0 and 1,000. We hope and pray Dr. McHugh is wrong. He hopes and prays he is wrong as well. Whatever will come, we believe, is in the hands of the Almighty, and so there is certainly reason to hope. Also, I would like to close with this exchange I had with Dr. Paul that I think gives reason to be hopeful. Listen to what Ron Paul had to say about why his run for the presidency has left him hopeful. Uh, before we get to the real issues um, of you know the central, central issues that this program is involved with, I just want to ask you, well, how do you feel about your presidential bid? I feel I feel good about it, uh, but uh, it, it's sort of a mixed feeling because uh, a lot of people were, um, you know, uh, upset that I just didn't continue in the process and do it as an independent. Uh-huh. There's always always some enthusiasm. You can't satisfy everybody's enthusiasm, and there were shortcomings in the campaign that was uh, my fault and others. But overall, I think I was. Uh, utterly shocked, just as you were sort of expressing yeah. surprise. Some people uh, gave support that you never would have dreamed of. That made me feel very good that uh, a lot of people would tell me that they had never been involved in politics before, never voted before, and they didn't trust anybody. And uh, so I think uh, that was exciting. But probably the most interesting is the fact that the young people are still interested. The young people still come to Washington. They'll come to see me, and I'm invited to campus all the time so that gives me hope for the future because the young people are willing to to look at the problems and maybe do something about it the people locked in the system i I don't expect a whole lot to happen and Mm -hmm. people that are in washington right now they've created this mess i don't expect them to solve it well that's all the time we have this week as just noted We will be back next week with our special guest, Dr. Robert McHugh. Before saying goodbye, I want to remind you that if you are not familiar with my newsletter and the work of Chen Lin or Roger Wiegand, you can sign up for our newsletters by going to miningstocks.com or calling my assistant, Claudio Bassi, at 718-457-1426. That's 718-457-1426. I also want to thank the staff at Voice America, starting with Tacey Trump, my senior executive producer, Ruben Columbe, Operations Manager, and Travis Ortwin, my engineer, all three for making this show logistically possible. And I also want to thank each of you for listening, and until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. 
Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 